0: From Pacifica Radio, this is Democracy Now! Jeremy Scahill reports from southern Serbia, where ethnic Albanian militants fired on a convoy containing the U.S. envoy and the U.S. ambassador to Yugoslavia. Robert Fisk reports from Beirut, Lebanon on newly elected Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon and his role in the infamous massacres of Sabra and Shatila. Then it's Noam Chomsky examining the legacy of occupation and failed peace efforts that set the stage for the right-wing electoral victory in Israel. that and more coming up on Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! Welcome to Democracy Now!, I'm Amy Goodman. Ariel Sharon was elected the next Prime Minister of Israel in a landslide victory over Ehud Barak last night. With close to 100% of the vote counted, Ariel Sharon had 62.6%. The margin is the largest ever in an Israeli prime minister's race, but the voter turnout was the lowest in Israel's history at 62%. Palestinians said today that their worst fears have come true. While they've said publicly negotiations with Sharon are possible privately, they say peace talks could soon break down and that four months of Palestinian-Israeli violence could worsen. We'll have more on Ariel Sharon with Robert Fisk in a minute. Sweden, which holds the rotating European Union presidency, urged the U.S. today to abandon plans for its national missile defense system. Swedish Foreign Minister Anna Lind said, we urge the United States to consider the consequences for disarmament and nuclear nonproliferation efforts if a national missile defense is developed and that the United States will therefore abandon this. Her statement followed a summit in Munich of top security officials at which U.S. Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld said the U.S. will go ahead with NMD, National Missile Defense, after extensive consultations with Europe. Meanwhile, the Russian defense minister said yesterday a national missile defense system will trigger a new spiral in the arms race and ruin the existing system of arms control. This news from Norway, a slain black teenager who's become a symbol of Scandinavia's battle against racism and neo-Nazism, was buried Monday following a service led by Norway's head Lutheran bishop and attended by 800 people. In what's seen as Norway's first racially motivated murder, 15-year-old Benjamin Hermansen was stabbed to death near his Oslo home late on January 26th. Six suspects linked to a neo-Nazi group have been arrested and charged in the murder. The murder touched a nerve in Scandinavia Norway has a small hard core of neo-Nazis but has seen little extremist violence compared to neighboring Sweden and Denmark. In the Danish capital of Copenhagen, about 1,000 people demonstrated against racism yesterday lighting 15 torches in front of a stage, one for each year of Hermansen's life. Anti-racism demonstrations also were held in Stockholm, the Swedish capital, and schools throughout Norway flew their flags at half-staff and paused for a minute of silence. Last week, as many as 40,000 people most with torches, marched in the cold night in Oslo to protest racism. In a legal first for East Timor, UN prosecutors yesterday filed multiple rape charges against an Indonesian army officer and two anti-independence militia leaders. The men allegedly committed the attacks during the wave of violence before and after the 1999 referendum in which the vast majority of East Timorese voted to break away from Indonesian rule. And we now turn to Jeremy Skehill, who is in southern Serbia, with this report on the front line. Jeremy, welcome to Democracy Now!
1: Thank you, Amy. I remain in the south of Serbia, uh, where there are increasing and intense attacks by ethnic Albanian extremists on Serbian security forces. Uh, this is a region which is... Uh, just outside of Kosovo, uh, in the south of Serbia. There's a a so-called demilitarized zone that separates Kosovo from the rest of Serbia. And interestingly, it's the eastern part of Kosovo where the U.S. military is patrolling that these ethnic Albanian extremists are able to make their way deeper and deeper into Serbia proper and carry out these attacks on Serbian security forces. Uh, Yesterday, as we said on the program, uh, the two top U.S. diplomats uh, for the region, for Yugoslavia, Ambassadors William Montgomery and James Perdue, Came down to the south of Serbia to observe the situation. Uh, they are some of the many uh, diplomats that have made their way down here to observe the situation on the ground. Uh, they were taken by uh, special police units to a checkpoint in Ljucane, which is where the massive attacks happened earlier this week that I uh, I was an eyewitness to. And when Ambassadors Montgomery and Purdue uh, got to the region, they were in an armored motorcade, and that motorcade began to make its way toward the checkpoint uh, of the Serbian police. And as the cars neared the checkpoint. I was in a car ahead of the ambassadors. I got out of the car, and uh, two shots were fired from the hill where the ethnic Albanians, calling themselves the Liberation Army of Veshevo, Medveja and Buyanovac, that's this region where I am right now, they fired two sniper rounds uh, in the direction of the motorcade. Uh, William Montgomery and James Perdue and their entourage, which included several uh, security forces, all of them wearing bulletproof vests, immediately turned their vehicles around and fled the scene, leaving their Serbian hosts at the checkpoint itself. Uh, Now, I read a number of The Wire stories this morning from the Associated Press and other news agencies, all of whom were not at the scene. We were the only people at the scene and uh, they were uh, quoting statements uh, from the U.S. Embassy saying uh, only that there were shots fired and they didn't know what direction they came from. Other reports indicate that U.S. State Department officials have said that they don't know if they came from Yugoslav forces or the Albanian side. But I've been spending a lot of time in this area, and it's very clear where the shots came from. It came from an area held by the so-called Liberation Army of Presevo, Medvedia, and Gujanovac uh, People here very much feel that it was an attempt to sabotage efforts, uh, to increase a uh, relationship with the United States and the K4 forces in an attempt to to stop the, the, these attacks on not only the security forces but Albanian and Serbian civilians alike in the region. Amy,
0: well, Jeremy Skehill, thank you for being with us. Jeremy Skehill is Democracy Now! correspondent in Yugoslavia, and in this final news on press censorship from three countries. Thousands of protesters demanded the resignation of Ukrainian President Leonid Kuchma over a scandal involving a missing journalist burning portraits of the president yesterday and chanting for a Ukraine without Kuchma. The protests followed the scandal over accusations the president played a role in the disappearance of an opposition journalist who criticized high-level corruption. The journalist disappeared in September. Authorities say a body found in woods outside Kiev is probably his. In this news from Moscow, prosecutors yesterday searched the offices of the battled independent Russian media company Media Most, one of its television networks and a bank that holds its accounts. A spokesperson for the prosecutor general's office said investigators were looking for incriminating in evidence in their fraud case against Media Most chief Vladimir Kuczynski. Kuczynski and his supporters say the case is part of a political persecution ordered by the Kremlin as punishment for his news organization's criticism of President Vladimir Putin. And finally, this news from Bangkok, a Thai television station partly owned by a conglomerate founded by incoming prime minister, fired seven journalists on Friday after they protested over interference in news coverage. The seven took part in a news conference last month at which they said the station's editorial output was being interfered with to ensure favorable coverage of the incoming prime minister. Ahead of Thailand's January 6th general election in which the prime minister scored a runaway victory, the journalist said there had been telephone orders banning reports that could negatively affect the popularity of the new prime minister Thaksin Shinawatra and his party. A further 16 journalists were fired for allegedly having a bad attitude towards their work. Hazel Dickens and friends singing Don't Put Her Down, You Helped Put Her There Here on Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now I'm Amy Goodman Yesterday, right-wing hawk Ariel Sharon Decisively defeated Ehud Barak In the Israeli election for prime minister In his victory speech, Sharon called on the Palestinians To end their uprising and negotiate What he described as a realistic peace He said any accord with the Palestinians Would have to protect Israel's vital interests Including an undivided Jerusalem Born in Palestine in 1920 Sharon has been a soldier for much of his life. During the Six-Day War of 1967, in which Israel captured East Jerusalem, the West Bank, and Gaza Strip, he commanded a division. The harsh occupation measures that he enforced there gave many Palestinians their first taste of a man who has now, who has become their sworn enemy. Elected to Parliament in 1977, Sharon masterminded Israel's disastrous invasion of Lebanon in 1982 as defense minister and without explicitly telling telling Prime Minister Menachem Begin, he sent the Israeli army all the way to Beirut, a strike that ended in the expulsion of Yasser Arafat's Palestine Liberation Organization from Lebanon. The move stopped the PLO using Lebanon to launch attacks against Israel, but also resulted in the massacre of hundreds of Palestinians by Lebanese Christian militiamen in Sabra and Shatila, two Beirut refugee camps under Israeli control. We're joined right now by Robert Fisk, a correspondent for the Independent newspaper uh, in Britain, but he is based in Beirut, Lebanon, and has just returned from Sabra and Shatila. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Robert Fisk. It's good to have you with us. As we talk about the uh, history of Ariel Sharon, uh, can you talk uh, about uh, your response uh, to his uh, prime Min- to the election of him as prime minister?
2: Well, it's not really my response. It's the response of the Arabs in general, and particularly, I suppose, the Palestinians. And inside Sabran Shatila camp, which looks very much as it did, except for the rain on the day I walked in on September the 18th, Um, 1982, when I stopped counting the bodies when I reached 100. um, People are not shocked, um, not certainly worried. In fact, they're quite cynical. Um, Many of the survivors who still live there, whom I spoke to, said that in one way it was a good thing because they felt that Sharon did represent the Israel that they knew, and they would rather the West saw an Israel led by Sharon, which would be much less sympathetic than Israel led by Barak, and might perhaps get more sympathy for the Palestinians, if this seems a dangerous even perverse form of logic for them to use you have to remember that for those palestinians in particular and for palestinians in general the events that happened here in beirut between the 16th and the 18th of september 1982 were nothing less than a war crime and in their eyes of course ariel sharon is nothing less than a war criminal um, across the editorial spectrum in lebanon for example there's a general acceptance, indeed welcome, that Sharon has taken over because it would put an end to what they regard as a humiliating attempt. I'm quoting leader writers in the Lebanese press this morning, um, a humiliating attempt by Israel and the Americans to bulldoze the Arabs and particularly the Palestinians into an unfair peace process. So the idea that The Arabs, which is put around by some media networks, are um, quaking in fear at the idea that Sharon has become prime minister is completely untrue. I see that the BBC World Service keeps referring to him as fearsome. Well, I sure haven't seen any fear among the Arabs. Cynicism, perhaps, hatred, but certainly no real alarm.
0: Sharon was removed from office in 1983 by an Israeli tribunal investigating the uh, 1982 Lebanon invasion and found him indirectly responsible for the killings at Sabra and Shatila. Now, for most politicians, an indictment of that kind would have meant the end of their political career. Uh, But for Sharon, his popularity among the Israeli hard right was enhanced during the 90s when as housing minister, he presided over the extensive building of Jewish settlements in the occupied West Bank and Gaza. And then, of course, most recently, uh, his visit to the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound in East Jerusalem, Uh, which sparked the Second Palestinian Intifada and has led to uh, close to 400 mainly Palestinians being killed.
2: Yes, it is ironic that the man who provoked the Second Intifada should get elected on a ticket of stopping the Intifada, which he himself started. Um, I don't think there's any end to cynicism among politicians or politics in the Middle East, and again, as I always say on your program, let's not get romantic about the Arabs in this side. Um, the odd thing is that over and over again, the Israelis have said of the Arab leaders that they are geriatric men with blood on their hands. President Hafez al-Assad of Syria, for example. Um, you can uh, look elsewhere in the middle east we can remember king hussein with the thousands of dead palestinians blood on his hands from the suppression of the palestinian uprising in amman in nineteen seventy and yet strangely enough most of the middle east leaders now are younger than the new israeli prime minister we have the young president bashar al-assad in syria the young king abdullah in jordan the young new young king in morocco the new young sheikh leading bahrain and Two strange things have happened. First of all, it appears that it's the Israelis who've elected a geriatric leadership, not the Arabs for once, not that their elections in the Arab world count for much. And secondly, from being in a situation where the Israelis would always point to the blood-spattered hands of their Arab opponents, the Arabs can now say, well, maybe we have blood-spattered hands, but so does the new prime minister of Israel. So there's a kind of odd, cynical understanding, I suspect, between the Arab leadership and the new leadership. In Israel, but this is not to detract from the terrible dangers which Sharon's premiership represents, nor the dangers represented by those people whom he's expected to bring in his, into his cabinet. Mr. Lieberman, for example, who is being slated for a ministry, is a man who has said he wants—he's he's prepared if Israel is attacked to burn Beirut, bomb Egypt, bomb Iran. I mean, uh, we, we, we then hear from Sharon uh, about his peace process a word which I gather we can't, we're no longer allowed by the State Department to use. It now has to be movement towards peace or peace negotiations. And when you actually read what Sharon has said in the last few days, his peace process is summed up by um, no Palestinian control over Arab East Jerusalem. No ending of settlements, no closing down of settlements, no right of return, uh, very little further transfer of occupied Arab land back to the Palestinians. If you actually read through it, it doesn't sound like a peace process. It sounds like a war process.
0: What about the relationship between Ariel Sharon and Yasser Arafat?
2: Well, you've got to realize that Arafat regards Sharon as a war criminal, and Sharon has long made it clear that he sees Arafat in the same light. After the Sabra Shatila massacre, the first video film, or in those days, it was actually real film, but put onto video, was taken to Damascus for Arafat to watch. He watched it in silence in an underground room and walked out without comment, so appalled at the heaps of corpses and bodies which he saw on the screen. It's interesting, by the way, that the main satellite channels, and indeed the main Arab channels, have not chosen to um, show again those appalling pieces of archive footage. They've contented themselves with showing Sharon before the uh, Israeli Tribunal of Inquiry into the massacres rather than the pictures of the massacres themselves, which is a very odd and strange decision for the satellite stations to take. I imagine it's the same in the States, though I don't know. Um, But again, Arafat sees Sharon as a war criminal. Sharon has repeatedly refused to shake Arafat's hand. And in fact, he, he is on record back in 1995, I think it was in October 95, um, of, of saying specifically, uh, actually 18th October 95, I know of no one who has more Jewish blood on their hands than Arafat since the Nazi era. Well, um, whether or not you think that's true, uh, that pretty much sums up the contempt which Sharon feels towards Arafat personally. But of course, one has to say that in the pragmatic Cynical and beastly world of politics. You don't have to like your opponent in order to make progress, one way or the other.
0: President Bush just called the new or the incoming Prime Minister Sharon to congratulate him. What do you think the relationship will be between these new leaders?
2: Well, I rather suspect if Mr. Bush is told, you know, who Mr. Sharon is and what happens in the Middle East and a little bit of the recent history that he may be fearing Sharon in the same way as the BBC seems to think the Arabs should be fearing Sharon. Um, Is Mr. Sharon a tame elderly man with memory lapses, as some Israeli correspondents are suggesting now, or is he the same ruthless and brutal man who was indeed personally responsible for Sabrin Shatila? Um, I don't think people change that much, although in politics uh, extraordinary transitions of a heavenly kind can sometimes be discovered. Um, I would think that the Bush administration as a whole, and here we're really talking about Colin Powell, the new U.S. Secretary of State, must be deeply disturbed at the implications of this. Sharon is a man, remember, who was prepared to plan an invasion of Lebanon without telling his own prime minister, Menachem Begin, what that invasion involved. He was a man who was prepared to secretly plan to take the Israeli army, not just 20 kilometers inside Lebanon in 1982, as he told his prime minister Begin, but all the way to Beirut, which he surrounded and bombarded for two months, which ended with the massacres. So this is a man who, as minister of defense, didn't even tell his own prime minister what he was doing with the country's army. Is he likely, therefore, to tell President Bush and the United States what he's going to do with the Israeli army, which is uh, funded, uh, in effect, by your taxes, which is effectively armed by the United States, and which is upheld by the United States. If he goes on past record, then he's not going to do that. And what we have is a very serious situation of the Americans trying to deal with a country which they won't refer to as a rogue state, but which may actually begin to look like that. Again, I repeat, this is not necessarily the way history will happen. Perhaps... Sharon has changed, and we need to remember that Sharon will have a lot of internal domestic problems inside Israel, not just with the official opposition, the Labour Party, but within his own Likud party. Mr. Netanyahu will be waiting there, waiting for Sharon to make mistakes, waiting for Sharon to fail to bring the security which he promised, which, of course, he will fail in doing because he's not going to provoke peace. He's going to provoke war. Uh, So he's going to have problems within his own administration. We'll have to see if he gets his so-called, quote, national unity government, unquote, whether Mr. Barack will participate, which many um, Labor members think he will be mad to do. Um, It's not just a simple question of, you know, is Sharon still as awful as he used to be and what would the Americans do? But I would imagine that Mr. Bush, when he's been given the very basic facts which Um, I suppose is all he's likely to be able to take in at the moment, whether he doesn't get very, very concerned about what this man is going to do or could do behind America's back.
0: Well, Robert Fisk, I want to thank you for being with us. Robert Fisk, correspondent for The Independent, speaking to us from Beirut, Lebanon, where he's been for more than two decades. And you're listening to Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! When we come back, Noam Chomsky on the Middle East. Stay with us. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now!, the exception to the rulers. This is an article from the Guardian newspaper in Britain, the mainstream press, uh, last October. Uh, It says, if Palestinians were black, Israel would now be a pariah state. Its development and settlement of the West Bank would be seen as a system of apartheid, in which the indigenous population was allowed to live in a tiny fraction of its own country in self-administered bantustans, and it goes on from there. In the U.S., we have to turn to voices like uh, that of Noam Chomsky to give analyses of the Middle East rarely heard in the mainstream media. The current election results in Israel of uh, Ariel Sharon as prime minister have roots in a legacy of occupation and failed peace efforts. Noam Chomsky, longtime activist and professor of linguistics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, recently spoke about the history and politics of Israel and the occupied territories.
3: The uh, core issue in the Middle East is uh, very straightforward, namely oil. Uh, since uh, World War I uh, the, uh, when the world began to move on to a, uh, an oil based economy, uh, the Middle East has uh, become central in world affairs for the very obvious reason that it has the uh, by far the largest and the most accessible petroleum resources, primarily in Saudi Arabia, secondarily in Iraq, and uh, thirdly in the uh, in the Gulf Emirates and elsewhere. Uh, it is, as the State Department described it in during the Second World War when the U.S. was taking over, it's a stupendous source of strategic power and the greatest material prize in world history. Uh, it's strategically the most important part of the world, as the uh, president of Columbia University, described it uh, as he was making his transition from uh, supreme commander of allied forces in Europe to supreme commander of the world uh, in the White House, uh, which I guess says something about Columbia's rank in world order. Uh, The uh, smaller, uh, more uh, expensive... Um, reserves like North Sea and Alaska are declining. Uh, The role of the Middle East in the world energy system is accordingly increasing and it'll become critical probably in the not-too-distant future uh, if, as is widely anticipated, the current oil glut proves to be temporary, which is not unlikely. The rate of discovery has been declining since the 1960s despite high technology and deep-sea drilling and so on and the uh, uh, usage of energy has been sharply increasing in fact about half of the total usage in history is since uh, the oil price rise in the early nineteen seventies and it's going up it's expected that the the magic halfway point as it's called when half of the known accessible resources are used is coming fairly soon Uh, all of this uh, uh, spells crisis. It's uh, possible, of course, that some unpredictable breakthrough will take place and things will change, but policy planning is not based on unpredictable technological breakthroughs. So we can pretty confidently expect that the United States will continue, as in the past, to do everything it can uh, to make sure that the greatest material prize in world history uh, remains firmly in its hands. Well, uh, the United States took over from Britain in the Middle East and, in fact, much of the world uh, after uh, the Second World War actually took, replaced Britain and France. Uh, France was summarily expelled. They weren't given the time of day. Uh, Britain, however, was given a role. It uh, was given a role of a junior partner, as the uh, British Foreign Office rather ruefully described it uh, accurately. Uh, it was, uh, Britain was going to be our lieutenant. Uh, the fashionable word is partner, as they were described by a senior advisor of the Kennedy administration. Uh, the U.S., uh, no that's reasonably accurate, actually. You're seeing an example of it right now. The lieutenant is doing its job. A tack dog, maybe. Uh, the uh, United States took over from, inherited from Britain, the modalities of control of the region as well. Uh, these modalities had changed during and after World War I when Britain was no, long, no longer had the force to rule the empire directly by occupation and therefore had to turn to uh, air power and uh, high technology, advanced technology. So uh, it was explained pretty frankly the distinguished statesman Lloyd George, uh, he was commenting on the on Britain's success in undermining a disarmament conference, which would have barred the use of air power against civilians, uh, he pointed out that that was a success because, uh, as he put it, uh, we have to reserve the right to bomb the niggers, uh, which kind of sums up world affairs rather nicely. Uh, Winston Churchill, who was then the uh, Secretary of State at the War Office, uh, was a great enthusiast for using... uh, advanced technology to achieve the same end. Uh, his favorite was poison gas. Uh, and he uh, 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 said that uh, uh, back in the early 20s that poison gas uh, would be a fine weapon, he thought, against uh, uncivilized tribesmen and recalcitrant Arabs. That's referring to, uh, uh, to Kurds and Afghans at the time, but they apparently qualified. He said it should inspire a lively terror you recall that poison gas was the ultimate atrocity in those days. Uh, the uh, 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 and he said that this is simply the use of uh, uh, the use of uh, advent. It's an application of Western science to military uh, to military warfare to the measures of warfare. Therefore, we shouldn't back off from it. Well, uh, those were the military tactics. They've had a distinguished career ever since. Uh, on the political side, uh, Britain we know from the British Foreign Office records, colonial office records, which have been declassified. Uh, they developed a system which, in fact, the US has taken over. Uh, the idea was that the, uh, the oil-producing states would be uh, administered by what the British called an Arab, secretly, of course, what they called an Arab facade, uh, constitutional fictions uh, beyond, behind which Britain would continue to rule. Uh, now, the facade has to be weak uh, because it has to be dependable, has to do what you tell it. On the, but then there's a problem, because if the facade is weak, it may not be able to control its own population, and its own population is uncivilized and ignorant. Uh, they do not understand that uh, uh, they can be easily infected by what's called a virus of uh, radical nationalism which was defined by the State Department back in the 1940s as the belief that the first beneficiaries of a country's resources ought to be the people of that country. Uh, And that, of course, is intolerable because any sane and civilized person can understand that the first beneficiaries of a country's resources have to be wealthy investors in the United States and so on. So these people just don't understand that, and they're always causing trouble. They're uncivilized tribesmen and so on, and sometimes poison gas doesn't work. Uh, So you have to have some way of keeping the Arab facade in power. And to do that, as the U.S. developed the system, there's two levels of violence required. Actually, this is all over the world. I mean, much of the history of the last half century uh, is the playing out of this issue in Southeast Asia and Latin America and Middle East and all over. It's not put that way, but that's the way it is. Uh, In the Middle East, uh, the way it was worked out is that there are to be uh, what the Nixon administration called local cops on the beat, Uh, that is, local gendarmes who sort of keep order in the neighborhood. Uh, And it's best to have them be non-Arab. They do better at killing recalcitrant Arabs. So there's a periphery of, in fact, what David Ben-Gurion, Israeli prime minister, called the periphery policy of non-Arab states, uh, Iran, under the Shah, Turkey, Israel, Pakistan. Uh, They're there to be the local cops on the beat. Uh, The understanding, of course, is that police headquarters remains in Washington. uh, And if things really get out of hand, the local cops on the beat can't handle it. Uh, There's... British and U.S. muscle and reserve to be used when needed. Uh, That's essentially the the modality of control. Uh, The uh, uh, Central Command, as it's now called, which was initiated by Carter as the Rapid uh, uh, Deployment Force, is the major U.S. intervention force by far in the world. And it's an enormous force. It's based from Guam to the Azores even with bases in the Indian Ocean where the uh, junior partner was kind enough to drive out the population of an island so that uh, U.S. bases could be put in there, all aimed at the core area, the Middle East Intervention Forces. Uh, In 1980, when uh, the Carter administration was explaining this to Congress, uh, they pointed out that the problem wasn't the Russians. Uh, In fact, this was after the invasion of Afghanistan, but they were realize that's not the problem. Uh, the problem is regional unrest. Uh, that is the, the virus of uh, radical nationalism. Well, that's essentially, and that remains the case. Uh, so uh, as for the Russians, we don't have to argue about it anymore. Uh, after, the, uh, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the Bush administration in a very important and therefore unreported uh, a declaration to Congress Uh, explained that everything has to remain exactly the same, same military budget, everything including the intervention forces uh, aimed at the Middle East, where, as they put it, uh, the threat to our interests could not be laid at the Kremlin's door. I mean, sorry, guys, we've been lying to you for 50 years, but uh, now there's no Kremlin, so let's be straight. The threat to our interests is regional unrest, uh, and we got to control it. Incidentally, notice that the threat to our interests could not be laid at Iraq's door either. Uh, at that point, Saddam Hussein was a great friend and ally. Uh, he had, it's true, he had gassed Kurds and tortured dissidents and you know, massacred people and so on, but he hadn't yet con- committed any crimes. Uh, the crime was disobedience. That's a crime. That came a couple of months later. But at that point, he was a great friend and ally. And the U.S. continued to support him right through the, you know, these things that maybe you and I would call crimes. Uh, it's a, kind of a, it's, it's interesting to hear just to switch to another period. Like right now in the U.S. and, and its attack dog, uh, attack bomb Iraq, the line that you hear from Tony Blair and Madeleine Albright and other distinguished figures uh, is that we have to do this how can we let such a creature survive he even committed the ultimate crime uh, gassing his own population uh, That their willingness to say that over and over uh, expresses extraordinary trust in the educated classes in England and the United States who they trust not to say what everyone knows that that can't possibly be the reason because we supported Saddam right through those atrocities and continue to increase the support after it but their trust is warranted, as you can tell by looking at the press and commentary. Uh, the, uh, going back here, uh, if you look at the structure of the system of control, you can determine very quickly how policy works. Uh, participants have rights uh, which are commensurate with their role in the system. So the United States has rights by definition. Uh, the junior partner has rights as long as it stays loyal. Uh, The same with the Arab facade and the same with the local gendarmes. Uh, What about the uh, peasants in Iraq or people in the slums of Cairo? Well, they don't contribute to the system, so they have no rights. Uh, What about the Palestinians? Well, they actually have negative rights. Uh, The reason is that they're a disruptive element. Uh, The fact that they were displaced uh, arouses nationalist feelings and causes problems for the facade and the gendarmes and the you know, the attack dog, uh, so therefore their rights are negative. Well, you know, from those, these are just kind of elementary principles of statecraft. You master those, you can predict very easily the way policy develops, and it works quite well. Uh, the end of the Cold War changed nothing, and that was well understood. So the, uh, one of the leading Israeli strategic analysts, uh, formerly head of military intelligence, uh, Shlomo Gazit, about a year after the end of the Cold War, wrote that uh, Israel's main task has not changed at all and it remains of central importance. Israel remains of central importance as the devoted guardian of stability in the region. Its role is to protect the existing regimes, namely the facade, uh, to prevent radicalization. That's accurate. You have to do a little translation. So uh, uh, stability... Uh, means U.S. control, and uh, uh, Israel is the devoted guardian of the control of the master, and it's amply paid for its service. Uh, radicalism means misunderstanding of who the first beneficiaries of a country's resources are, uh, and fundamentalist religious zealotry uh, does not, you know, Arabism does that, does not entail that we have to say bomb Saudi Arabia. Uh, or bomb jerusalem or bomb most of the united states uh, which is the most extreme radical fundamentalist religious state in the world i suppose uh... rather what it means is this is a code word which means the particular forms of radicalization that is failure to understand who the first beneficiaries are uh... the particular forms of radicalization that happen to take a religious cast when secular nationalism is destroyed that's a pretty common pattern But if you make the translations, what Gazit was saying was certainly accurate. Well, U.S.-Israeli relations developed in that context. So in 1948, uh, the U.S. military was quite impressed by uh, uh, Israel's uh, military actions. They were described a couple of days ago in uh, Israel's leading paper, Haaretz, by a good reporter, as being Kosovo without TV cameras, approximately accurate. Uh, In 1949, uh, the U.S. US Army planners uh, concluded, I'm quoting, that Israel had demonstrated by the force of arms its right to be considered the military power next to Turkey uh, in the Near and the Middle East. In 1958, uh, the U.S. intelligence concluded that it's a logical corollary of opposition to radical Arab nationalism uh, to support Israel as the only reliable U.S. ally in the region. Actually, 1958 was a very important year in modern history. Uh, the U.S. was facing three major crises at that time. They were described uh, in declassified, now declassified, records by Eisenhower and Dulles at the National Security Council. Uh, they said the U.S. was facing three major crises, uh, Indonesia, North Africa, and the Middle East. Uh, they also, Eisenhower and Dulles, both explained vociferously, according to the notes, that there was no Russian involvement in any of them. Uh, Well, these are all of course Islamic countries, maybe like an early illustration of uh, the clash of civilizations, Uh, but that was irrelevant. I mean they could have come from Mars. Uh, The crucial thing about those three regions is they were all oil producers uh, and the planning, the concern over them was interrelated having to do with the threat to U.S. domination of oil production in the Middle East and maybe use of Indonesia as a temporary substitute. And and there were very significant actions that took place, uh, among them the destruction of Indonesian democracy. Uh, The U.S. uh, carried out a uh, huge clandestine operation to try to to break up Indonesia, to separate off the uh, uh, outlying islands, the ones that are the oil producers, Uh, that had all kinds of consequences. Uh, In the Middle East, the U.S. landed troops in Lebanon, uh, armed uh, apparently with authorization to use nuclear weapons according to uh, high U.S. officials. Uh, It was a serious matter. The concern at that point was Iraq. Uh, Iraq had broken the Anglo-American condominium over oil. And remember, it's the second largest producer, a uh, military coup which The U.S. regarded as Nasserite in inspiration, uh, had sort of pulled the country out of the system, and that caused real hysteria. I won't have time to go into it now. Talk about it if you like. But uh, there were, the British Foreign Secretary flew to the United States immediately, and they uh, laid plans which are extremely revealing. They explained just about everything that was going on in 1990 and 91, almost verbatim. Anyhow, it was taken pretty seriously. Uh, the, uh, that's uh, 1958. Uh, in the early 1960s, there was a proxy war going on between Nasser and... Nasser was considered the heart of the rot, you know, the source of radical nationalism. And there was a kind of a proxy war going on between Nasser and Saudi Arabia, the main oil producer, which was very threatening. Uh, in 1967... Uh, Israel intervened and smashed Nasser, uh, and that was a major contribution. The U.S.-Israeli alliance was solidified. Uh, After the Israeli military victory, Israel also became the darling of uh, uh, American intellectuals.
0: Noam Chomsky, professor of linguistics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, well-known scholar and activist on foreign policy, particularly U.S. foreign policy around the Middle East. You're listening to Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! We'll be back with Professor Chomsky's speech in a minute. This is Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. As we continue with the speech of Noam Chomsky given in the spring of 1999 at Columbia University talking about Middle East history and politics, Noam Chomsky. Uh,
3: After the Israeli military victory, Israel also became the darling of uh, uh, American intellectuals from going from far right to left liberal. Uh, which is an interesting phenomenon about the United States, but its consequences show up mostly in the coverage of uh, these events and discussion about them. In 1970, uh, Israel again proved that it's a devoted guardian. Uh, The U.S. needed it to intervene to prevent possible Syrian involvement to try to block Jordan, which was then massacring Palestinians, and Israel did intervene and barred that, and that was considered a very welcome contribution. U.S. aid to Israel quadrupled at that point. In 1979, when the Shah fell, uh, Israel's role simply increased. One of the main guardians was gone. Uh, that's actually the origins of the what's falsely described as the arms for hostage deal began at that time. There were no hostages. It's completely different. Uh, but anyhow, it did solidify the alliance further. Well, the going back to 67, that war was dangerous. Uh, It came, well, quote, Secretary McNamara was in Secretary of Defense, Uh, we damn near had war, he said, with the Russians. Uh, There was an actual confrontation between the Russian and American navies in the eastern Mediterranean, and it was realized that we better quiet things down. So there was a diplomatic settlement worked out under the initiative of the United States and its junior partner. That's uh, the famous UN-242. Uh, it, it, uh UN 242, uh, November 1967, uh, basically called for full peace in return for full Israeli withdrawal. Uh, notice that UN 242 was completely rejectionist. That's very crucial for understanding what's happening now. It offered nothing to the Palestinians just with agreement among states. Uh, so full peace in return to, for full withdrawal. Uh, the, uh, there was a deadlock. Uh, the Arab states refused f- full peace. Israel refused full withdrawal. Uh, that deadlock was broken in February 1971. At that point, uh, President Sadat of Egypt offered full peace to Israel for only partial withdrawal, namely withdrawal from Egyptian territory. Well, the U.S. kind of had an internal problem at that time. It was a bureaucratic battle that went on. It was won by Henry Kissinger, uh, who preferred force what he called stalemate, no negotiations. Uh, So he refused Sadat's offer. He took over, a very important date. Uh, That terminated U.S. support for UN 242. Since that time, the United States has not supported it, contrary to what you read, uh, because it has reinterpreted to mean partial withdrawal, as the United States and Israel determined. Uh, 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 Israel uh, at that point uh, this was a period of enormous triumphalism which Kissinger shared he thought Egypt was kind of a basket case Uh, and his uh, ignorance and stupidity uh, which are really colossal when you look at the documents uh, are led directly to the 1973 war uh, which did uh, demonstrate that that Egypt wasn't a basket case you had to pay some attention to it that even got through the clouds to Kissinger. Uh, He then uh, uh, undertook shuttle diplomacy, and the the plans at that point were to try, since he can't forget about Egypt, uh, let's eliminate it. It's the major Arab military force, let's remove it from the conflict uh, so that then Israel can proceed with U.S. support to integrate the territories and attack Lebanon. Uh, That's policy which then reached, you know, was concluded at Camp David. That's known in the United States as the peace process. Uh, and that, uh, in fact, exactly what happened. U.S. support for Israel reached 50% of total aid at that point. Well, meanwhile, there was a shift in the international consensus going on. It was shifting away from f- pure rejectionism towards recognition of Palestinian rights. Now, that became a crisis and another crucial date, namely January 1976, when the Security Council debated a resolution. Uh, calling, which included UN-242, all of its wording, uh, but also called for a Palestinian state and the territories that um, Israel was to leave you know, under 242. Uh, well, that was supported by the whole world, virtually. Uh, the Arab states, PLO, Russians, Europe, Latin America, everybody, except the one state that counts, uh, which vetoed it. So the U.S. vetoed that resolution, and it's also vetoed from history. You might try to search for it. Uh, 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 But it was a very crucial date. At that point, the U.S. became uh, doubly rejectionist in a strong sense. No 242 and no Palestinian rights. Uh, Alone in the world, virtually, except for Israel. Uh, Well, then matters continued. Uh, Things shifted over to the General Assembly. There were almost annual votes of a similar nature, uh, usually, like you know, 150 to two or something like that. Uh, and there were initiatives from Europe, from the Arab states, from the PLO, all rejected by the United States. Uh, the leading journals, like say the New York Times, uh, refused even to publish most of them, even letters referring to them. Uh, all of this is what's called the peace process again. Uh, that continued until uh, uh, 1990. The last General Assembly vote uh, was December 1990, 144 to 2. Then came the Gulf War. Uh, The Gulf War established, as George Bush put it, uh, the Gulf War established that what we say goes, and you better understand it, uh, it was understood. Uh, So what we say goes, uh, the U.S. returned to its support for its old friend Saddam while he murdered Shiites and Kurds since then has been turning to a rather rational policy of destroying Iraqi society that's highly rational especially for an oil producing state Uh, if you destroy the society and the population there's much less concern that the first beneficiaries might be the people of the region because they're not going to be able to ask for anything so the policy that's going on now of basically mass murder, uh, is a very reasonable policy, particularly for an oil producer. Uh, With regard to the Israel-Arab problem, uh, the Israel-Palestinian problem, the U.S. immediately moved on to Madrid. Uh, Fall of 1991, the Madrid conference met all U.S. conditions. First, it was unilateral, no interference from Europeans or anyone else. Uh, Secondly, it was totally rejectionist. Uh, So the U.S. could ram through its rejectionist program that was the official program actually has yet to be reported in the United States as far as I'm aware uh, in the mainstream that is, but uh, it was the Baker Plan Uh, the Baker Plan which simply endorsed the Shamir Paris Plan uh, which stated that there cannot be an additional Palestinian state additional because there already is one, namely Jordan so there can be no additional Palestinian state uh, and the fate of the territories has to be settled according to the guidelines of the state of Israel that was the official US program endorsing the Shamir-Paris uh, consensus, which was initiated, instituted at Madrid. Uh, we then move on to uh, Oslo. September 1993, the Declaration of Principles was signed, uh, and uh, it was an enormous victory for the United States. Remember, I, I don't know if you've looked at it, but you should look at what it said. The, it didn't say much, but it said something. It's, it described the permanent settlement That is the long-term end goal which must be achieved. And that must be strictly UN-242, not the other UN resolutions which called for Palestinian rights alongside of Israel. And, of course, UN-242 means the U.S. interpretation of it, which rejects UN-242. So the permanent settlement is doubly rejectionist. No Palestinian rights, no UN-242. Israeli withdrawal, just as the U.S. and Israel decide. Uh, the U.S. and Israel had decided. They were pursuing a program that uh, was called the al plan that the Israeli labor government instituted in 1968, uh, which essentially, it's varied a little bit over the years, but the basic idea is that Israel keeps roughly 40% of the occupied territories, the the resources, primarily water, uh, the usable land, uh, the nice suburbs of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, which are mostly in the West Bank, uh, and the part of the Gaza Strip they want, and so on. And the rest uh, sort of you, know, you can leave to the recalcitrant Arabs, the uncivilized tribesmen. Uh, the, uh, uh, that's changed a little bit over the years. Right now, it's a little different. Uh, Netanyahu uh, calls for what he calls uh, a loan plus, so the alone plan plus a little bit more. Uh, his opponent, the Labor Party in Barak, uh, he calls for an, an expanded alone plan. Uh, those are the two political groupings in Israel, either alone plus or an expanded alone plan. Uh, one political commentator in Haaretz again says that uh, one listens to the ideas of Barak and hears the voice of Netanyahu, kind of paraphrasing a biblical passage. Uh, uh, and the U.S. supports it, of course. Uh, after uh, Oslo, the uh, Rabin in Paris immediately moved to expand settlement and, and development. Um, took over about 30 percent of the West of the Gaza Strip, most of its meager resources. Uh, in the West Bank, the most crucial part of the development is the area which is called Greater Jerusalem. Greater Jerusalem is, you know, it's a huge area. It extends from Ramallah to Bethlehem and as far east as Jericho. Uh, And since Israel's keeping the Jordan Valley, it effectively uh, breaks up the West Bank into two cantons. There are other developments which break it into further ones. Uh, The uh, Oslo II, September 1995, spells all of this out further. Uh, uh, There's a Palestinian Authority which can sort of run affairs in downtown Nablus. Uh, And then there's... uh, Roughly a hundred, actually more than a hundred, scattered Palestinian settlements, uh, separated from one another, and crucially isolated from the uh, economic, cultural, uh, even medical center in Jerusalem, centers of Palestinian life. Uh, there are uh, the Jewish areas are connected by superhighways. Uh, you can drive through them and not even know there are any Palestinians. Uh, then there are things which are officially called Palestinian roads. Actually, I drove one not long ago from Bethlehem to Ramallah. I mean, if you make it alive, you're lucky if it's raining, very lucky. Uh, those are the Palestinian roads which interconnect the Palestinian settlements. Uh, uh, um, well, somebody's got to manage the Palestinian population. Okay, that's where Yasser Arafat and the PLO come in. Uh, there, it's t- a gangster regime based on robbery and uh, um, brutality. Uh, it's, uh, the managers of it are to enrich themselves and to suppress the locals. Um, uh, the more brutally they do it, the more they're applauded by Al Gore and Bill Clinton. That's the central content of the Y Accords. Uh, the CIA is now there to supervise and make sure it works right. Uh, this should not surprise anyone. This is an absolutely typical colonial pattern. That's the way the British ran the Raj. That's the way the U.S. ran Central America. It's just standard. Now it's being carried over to this case. Well, the goals have been perfectly obvious for years to anybody with eyes open. It takes real dedication to miss them. And remember that these are the plans of the labored doves, uh, even if the voice is Netanyahu's. Uh, I was in Israel not too long ago giving talks about this, and I started by just reading a paragraph from a standard history of South Africa uh, in the early 1960s at the time when they were setting up the first homelands, Transkei. It's kind of late, so I'll skip the paragraph unless you want me to read it. Uh, But the point is that I didn't have to comment You know, you read the paragraph about the establishment of Transkai, and everybody could recognize what's happening right outside their door. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's the position of the doves. Uh, Now, there are differences between Rabin, Paris, two heroes, and Netanyahu, the villain. Uh, a number of differences, uh, contrary to the comment in the Israeli press. Uh, Rabin and Paris were adamantly opposed to uh, allowing the Palestinians to call whatever they got, a state. On the other hand, Netanyahu has been more ambiguous. So his minister of uh, division of, the, uh, uh, of uh, communications and policy, plan- director of communications and policy planning, David barilan uh, recently said that, well, you know, if the Palestinians want to call these scattered areas a state, uh, we won't mind. In fact, if they want, they can call it fried chicken, he said uh, elegantly. Uh, that's, you know, there's a little difference between the two. Uh, there's also a difference of style. Uh, the, and the style of different, uh, makes, is important. Uh, and the style reflects their constituencies. Uh, labor is the party of the rich. It's the party of the professionals, the um, westernized secular elements. Uh, Likud, the other party grouping, uh, is the party of the poor, you know, working people, uh, Oriental Jews, religious, and so on. And those divisions do reflect themselves in the style by which they behave. So labor is much more attuned to the norms of Western hypocrisy. And they do things in the way they know the West is going to like. So they have spokesmen like, say, Abba Eben, who knows how to put in nice phrases, uh, things like beating people up and smashing them and so on and so forth.
0: Professor Noam Chomsky teaches linguistics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. A well-known political analyst and critic is the author of numerous books, particularly on the Middle East. That does it for today's program. Democracy Now! is produced by Chris Abrams and Terry Allen. Our engineer is Anthony Sloan. Our technical director is Errol Maitland. From the embattled studios of WBAI, from the studios of the Fired and the Band, From the studios of our listeners, I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for listening to another edition of Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now!